Today's sermon text is Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 977. Hear the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let me pray for us as we get started looking at God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you that you have given us a sure and steady anchor that we can find in your word, that you've spoken by your spirit, and that shows us Jesus. We pray that today you would make that so. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning I want to start off with a question, and if you're an adult, I'm going to ask you to kind of put yourselves back into the shoes of when you were a kid. Kids, this question is maybe squarely aimed at you. You you don't have to pretend, you can just think with me. As a kid, what are some of the things that you look forward to in growing up? What were some of the things that you were excited about growing up? Lane, I see a hand raise. I'm going to just give you a few instead of you answering. I appreciate that, though. (laughs) Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's like a later bedtime, right? So you can stay up and your parents, they don't tell you anymore what, how late to stay up. Maybe, maybe it is your diet. Like, I don't have to eat what you tell me. You put this stuff on my plate. I can go fix my own food, buy my own food, that type thing. Um, for me, and, and this is, I think this is true, at least for most of my friends, the thing that I looked forward to the most was a driver's license. 
right? Maybe even as your parents, your parents might be looking forward to you getting a driver's license too, which means you can go and do things independently. Uh, For some of you who are older, maybe those of you who are already driving, maybe it's college or a job. You get to move on to the kind of next stage of your life. And what so many of those things have in common is an increased independence. As, As you mature physically and mentally, you're able to just gain little bits of more and more independence from your parents, one day moms and dads are saying, hey, let me help you get dressed. And the next day, uh, some of you may be in the throes of this. Your kids look at you in the face and scream, I can do it myself. And that's a good thing. It'd be really weird if you said, hey, I, I like your shirt. And I said, well, my mom put it on me this morning. Right? We want independence, physical and mental independence as we grow. But, but let me just ask you a related question to that. As, as you think about spiritual maturity, is, is that the same type of relationship? As we grow in spiritual maturity, does that mean that we're growing to be more independent from others? Now, there, there's a sense maybe in which we could affirm some part of that. Faith is meant to be personal. It's meant to be something that we affirm. As you heard so clearly in the testimonies earlier that I'm going to read again for you now, this is what we, what Graham and Nate told us. This is just Graham's testimony. I've grown up in a Christian home with loving parents. They've encouraged me to grow in my faith and my relationship with God. However, I had always assumed their faith was also mine. And since they are missionaries, I must also be a Christian. But now I understand that I cannot be saved by my parents' faith. Now I have accepted the fact that Jesus is my Savior and he came, lived a perfect life and died for my sins. And I have placed my trust in him. And upon my confession of faith today, I want to be baptized as a public declaration. And Nate says very similar. He says that he, as he growing up in a Christian home, he felt close to God, but he realized at a conference in Michigan, growing up in a Christian home doesn't mean he's saved and going to heaven. You have to acknowledge my sin, repent and trust in Jesus myself. So I've placed my trust in Jesus and have a desire to follow him. There's, there's a sense in which you say faith is personal. That, that's true. But faith is not private. And our maturity in Christianity, if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, the Bible is very clear. It's not independence. It's interconnected, interconnectedness. It's dependence. It's community that we need so desperately. Maturity in the Christian faith requires other people be involved in your life. Christian maturity is a community project, not just a solo task, a mission given to you and you alone. And I hope to show you that this morning from Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And just to try to bring that out, we're going to ask this question and bring out four answers. So here is the questions there at the top of your note sheet if you grabbed one of those on the way in. What do we need if we want to grow up? into Christian maturity? What do we need if we want to grow up into Christian maturity? So let's turn to Ephesians 4 and examine kind of four ingredients that are laid out for us here in this passage for Christian maturity, starting first with gifts from the triumphant Christ. What do you need to grow into Christian maturity? You and I need gifts given by the triumphant Christ. 
Now, these first like four verses, I think, are probably maybe the hardest in this passage to understand what's going on. So I'm going to read them again. And if you are getting lost in the forest because there's some trees here that you're just kind of stuck on, we'll stop just after this. We'll talk some about the, about the big picture. But just listen here and, and know that some of these are difficult, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, there are particular phrases in there that you may have questions about. And if I don't answer your questions right now, I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. Thankfully, though, I think that Paul's main point, the thing that he's driving at in these few verses, is relatively clear. Okay, There's two main ideas here that Paul is focusing on. First, Jesus, in his resurrection and in his ascension especially, he shows and kind of demonstrates publicly to the world that he has defeated all the powers of evil. Every evil force arrayed against Jesus lies defeated at his feet. It says in verse 8, he ascended and led a host of captives. And the second thing, now that he is ascended, he distributes. He gives gifts to his people. In verse 7, it says he gives grace. And that, that word there, grace, that's not talking about saving faith. That's true. We get saving faith in Christ. We get grace in him. But here... Verse 8 says he's talking about gifts, the the grace of serving one another, what we may call spiritual gifts. And these two big themes of God's triumph and of giving gifts to his people, this takes Paul, who was a well-trained Jewish man, it takes him back to the Old Testament. Uh, If you have ever had a conversation with David Brown, this is what happens in the office weekly. I say something like, you know, I was thinking... And then I just take a very small pause and immediately David Brown goes, I was thinking and starts singing a song. The laugh makes me know that you've had this, this happen to you as well. David just has a database of music constantly in his head. And so you say something and he usually goes back to a 90s country song that I don't know. And he starts singing it to you. Paul, Paul here, he's already mentioned Jesus triumphing over, over Satan and the forces of evil. Now he's talking about Jesus distributing gifts to his people. And he goes, you know what? That's Psalm 68. That's Psalm 68 all over again. Psalm 68, these same two themes of God conquering his enemies and giving gifts come out. This is why he quotes Psalm 68 there in verse 8. So look, at the very beginning of the psalm, he shows God triumphs over his people. This is on your note sheet. Psalm 68, verse 1 and 2. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. God is the conquering king. And then in the wake of his victory, God, in Psalm 68, it says he receives gifts from men. He is given things by those. But then he doesn't just hoard those gifts himself. He actually gives those gifts to his people. That's how the psalm ends, Psalm 68, 34, and 35. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. 
awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. The God of Psalm 68 conquers the enemies of Israel. He receives gifts and then gives them to his people. And Paul here looks back and says, you know, when David was writing that about God and Psalm 68, he wasn't just writing about the king of Israel. He wasn't just writing about God taking his people from Sinai to Jerusalem in the temple. He was writing about Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who came down, who descended to the earth, who conquered all the spiritual forces of evil in his death and resurrection, and who is now ascended on high, who fills all things and graciously gives gifts to his church. That's what's happening in Psalm 68 and what Paul says is happening now in Christ. And here's what we shouldn't miss, how things of, of applying this. How do we apply this? We need to remember that Jesus is a generous giver. Jesus is a generous giver. He gives the grace of service to each one of us. That's what it says at the very beginning. He gives grace to each one of us. So every man and woman and boy and girl in this room, if you are a Christian, God has gifted you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a spiritual gift that is given to you for the benefit of others. Now, you may not know exactly, you may think, yes, he has, and I see exactly what that is in my life. I know that God has gifted me in this way. You you may not exactly know what that is. He he lists some spiritual gifts here in verse 11 that we'll see in just a minute. Uh, There are lists of gifts that happen in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Those are good places to go, but I don't think those are comprehensive. It's not like Paul is trying to list out, here's every single thing that God has ever given his people. There's a host of ways that God gifts his people to serve his church. And if, if you're wondering, I don't really know what that looks like, let me just, here's my advice, my counsel to you. Go start serving. Just find a place and say, I want to insert myself in serving people, God's people, in this way. And ask God to bless your service. You, you can go take a spiritual gift assessment if you want to do that. But I find when I take those, I kind of skew them because I want to be really good at certain things and not so good at other things. So lo and behold, I'm good at what I want to be good at. Just, just plug in and say, there's a need here and I'm going to meet it. And church, if, if that's the way that we are telling people, hey, go find your gift by serving others in this way, it actually is a, a two-way street. So your job now is to encourage those who are using their gifts well. You, you may not have the same gifts as them, but, but if you notice that somebody is the person who every week when a visitor walks in the door, they're like making a beeline for them and trying to incorporate them into the life of the body, that may not be you at all. But you should take the time to go up to that person and say, thank you so much for the way that you're using your gift. Your gift of hospitality, it's evident and it serves our body. Uh, Working like the kids system for nursery, there's there's a lot that goes into that. There's check-in, there's snacks, there's diaper changes, all sorts of things. And if somebody is excellent at that, parents especially, go thank them for it. Tell them, thank you for using your gift to serve the church. I just want to encourage you. You may have the gift of administration and making all of these complex things simple for us to use. That's a gift to the body of Christ. 
We should be grateful that God generously gives gifts, and we should be very thankful that God does not give the same gift to every single one of us. It's God's good design to give diverse gifts according to his pleasure, it says. We we talked last week, the verses leading up to this are all about unity in the body of Christ and where we find the foundation for unity, what that means and how we work out in unity. But unity in the body does not mean uniformity. It does not mean that we're all the same kind of people. We need the kind extroverts who are going out of their way to welcome people. We need the thoughtful, quiet people who are inviting people into their homes and asking deep, probing questions. Diverse gifts are a a gift to our church. It's a blessing for that. We have the same foundation. We have the same goal. We're working towards the same end. We should be thankful that God does not gift us with all the same things. And if Jesus is the one who gives gifts, then there is no room for arrogance on our part. If Jesus is the one who generously gives gifts, we need to be careful that we don't look at those who have different giftings and say, I'm jealous. I I wish that was mine. But, But it's not. And even for those of you who have maybe like similar gifting. This is, this is where I feel the comparison monster kind of overtake my desires. I could see people who I look at and think, that person is more gifted than me, and I want to give thanks for that. I want to give thanks for the way that God has given different, even levels of gifting to our, to our church, to ways that we can serve in that way. If G, and if this is the help for me, if Jesus is the one who gives that gift, there's no room for arrogance on our part if we do it really well. And there's no part, there's no place for moaning if somebody else does it better. That should just encourage us towards thanksgiving that God gifted that person to do it so well. We can desire and even pray that we would grow in those gifts. We don't compare one another. We're, we are not competitors in the marketplace of spiritual gifts in the church. We are teammates. We are working for the same end and the same goal. We are just stewards of his gifts. Jesus is a generous giver, and we're also reminded, the second thing, just to remember, Jesus is the triumphant Lord, and he helps his church. He helps his church. Matthew sixteen eighteen says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, and we can have confidence in that. One, because Jesus is the one who actually has already defeated the minions of hell. He's the one who reigns above them all and has them underneath his feet. And so if he says, my church, I will make sure it endures throughout all generations, we can count on the fact that his body will continue to go from now until the end of time. Now that promise to the universal church, to all of God's people, that is not a promise that is made to every individual local church. It is God's hard providence sometimes and sovereign will that there are local churches, some that you may even know in our town, who have had to walk the difficult path of closing their doors. That's not a sign that God has failed this promise, but in his sovereignty, he has decided that other churches would grow and this one should shrink. But I am thankful to God just in reflecting on this this week and thinking about this. uh, I'm thankful to God that he answered the many prayers of you here at Philadelphia Baptist Church. Many of you who prayed for so long that God would preserve the ministry of this church. At just the right time, God who knows and who sees, he knows what to provide. And he has done so. In my first meeting with David, David, I'm really sorry if I'm picking on you this week. It's not picking, it's just loving. Uh, I asked David, just sitting down and said, just tell me something about the history of 
of Philadelphia. You've been here for a decade. I've been here for two weeks. What's, um, tell me something. And, and he just walked through some of the times that were very difficult, uh, particularly eight or nine years ago when there was no pastor and the church was looking and trying to think, how are we going to keep going? Can we hire somebody full time? Do we have the money to do that? Can we find somebody who wants to do this part time? And in y'all's prayers and in the providence of God, just at the right time, God provided the gift of Corey. And God sent what they needed. And if you want to get David Brown teary eyed, there's a lot of things you can do, honestly. But a surefire way to do it is just to ask him to recount God's faithfulness. David, tell me about how God has sustained the ministry of this church. It's a, a, a blessing in, in all of this. What you should get, what we should see in verses 7 through 10, is that the triumphant Jesus looks down at his church and he says, fear not, little flock. He is conquered. And then he gives gifts to his church for the service of maturity, to mature us into the image of Christ. And if we have any hope of striving towards maturity, we need the gifts of the triumphant Christ, which Paul goes on to list some of these, just a few of these, in verse 11. Okay, look at verse 11. He lists some of the gifts that God gives, that Jesus gives. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And I'll carry on verse 12 in just a minute. So the second ingredient that we need for Christian maturity, we need leaders who are gifted in ministry of the word. We need leaders who are gifted in ministry of the word. The gifts that God gives his church for the purpose of maturity, the first thing we should notice before we go farther, it's not, uh, this building is a wonderful gift. We should see it as a gift from God. This building will never and has never made any of you mature in Christ. Programs that we have and things that we do, those are good gifts that we want, but they have never made you and I mature in Christ. The thing that God gives are people. God gifts people. And what ties this list of people together is their work in God's word. These particular, this list of five here, they are working together with God's word. So apostles and prophets were mentioned there earlier in Ephesians 2.20. If you want to flip back quickly to Ephesians 2.20, you can see kind of how this gift was utilized in the church. I'll start in verse, verse 19, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, so these two apostles and prophets, they were foundational. They served a founding stance in the church. And not just to the church in Ephesus, but to the household of God, is what Ephesians 2.20 says, to the universal church. Jesus called and commissioned these apostles, the twelve apostles, Paul himself, others who said they were sent out for the spread of the gospel. And then God used them along with prophets that we see in the New Testament who ultimately write what you hold in your hands. This scripture is written by these apostles and prophets. Their ministry of the word laid the foundation of the church that we even stand on today. So God gave these foundational gifts, apostles and prophets, but then he continues to gift his church today with people who minister the word. For one, he says we should be grateful to God to have men and women who are gifted as evangelists. 
I, I love this metaphor. Pastor Kent Hughes, he uses this analogy of seeing evangelists, these brothers and sisters, they're like obstetricians. I think I said that word right. Obstetricians. Did I say that word right? Good. Okay, thank you. Sorry. I should have practiced that earlier. Those who are gifted in effectively sharing the gospel. These are brothers and sisters who just have a gift of explaining the gospel in plain ways that, that people who don't know Christ hear and understand, or maybe they're just pierced to the heart, ask probing questions about why it is they've been following something else. That's a gift to the church. And if, if evangelists are like obstetricians, then shepherds and teachers are pediatricians and family doctors. They feed and nourish the people of God with his word for spiritual growth. Uh, the distinction between those two, shepherds and teachers, it seems that so throughout the rest of the, the New Testament, shepherds, they kind of use the word for pastors. You can even look in your footnote in the ESV, it should say that down there. So you say these shepherds or pastors or elders or overseers of the church, they, they should be able to teach, but not just teach. They have a particular calling to guide, to lead, to protect a local church. Now, Paul lists these gifts here, and it's not because those people are the most important people. Okay, the, the elders of the church are not the most important people around, but they are probably the most influential. They have the most influence in directing and shaping. Think about, uh, think about some examples maybe on the, some negative examples. Think about, a teacher who spends his or her time in a church setting even talking about positive principles for living, positive thinking, but, but who never once cracks open their Bible. What, what kind of so-called church is that building? What foundation is being laid there? Or, or think about a shepherd who actually instead of guiding and guarding and leading the sheep, he uses them to his advantage. What kind of culture is created there? You you see a culture, if there are shepherds who are taking advantage of the sheep, the whole culture of the church is one that's not looking to Christ-exalting service and selflessness, but Christ-denying selfishness. These people have influence, and they can use it for bad, they can use it for good. You may have people in your own mind. Think about women in our church who faithfully lay, who have faithfully laid solid foundations for decades even, year after year, teaching groups of elementary students. Some of you may be even able to look around and see women who taught you in this church and give thanks to God that their faithfulness is bearing fruit even as you teach your children about the Bible. Think about that kind of good legacy, that kind of influence. Think about evangelists who even go to places like Papua New Guinea to build healthy churches. Lord willing, there are people who in the next five years look back and give thanks to God for that gift, but not just five, but 25 and 55 and 105 years from now. People look back and say, the influence that that faithful brother or sister had carried on long after they were in the ground. Ministry with God's word has tremendous influence. And those of you here who are gifted in this way, remember, we will give an account to God on how we use this gift. We will give an account to God on how we use this influence, whether good or bad. And church, we, not not just we have an accountability to give, but we, church, all of us, we are called to hold those who teach, those who shepherd, 
those mission partners we send out, we are called to hold them faithful to teaching God's word. Paul himself tells the Galatians, this is Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Flatly, if I ever preach a false gospel, you have a job, and your job is to fire me. If a mission partner we find is not training up churches but building on false doctrine, the loving thing to do is to let them go. So we don't believe that's a church. We should be cautious about the influence that using the word has. But for the cautions that we should have, we should also be reminded of the wonderful gift it is. Of the good gift it is to have someone who faithfully, regularly teaches God's word. Everyone in this room, I would just encourage you, even this afternoon, today is a great day to think through who is it that God has used to faithfully teach me his word. I thank God for people like my parents. Uh, There's a woman named Bobby Rhodes, who I don't think any of you know. She was my elementary school Sunday teacher, Sunday school teacher, and she loved me and loved God enough to faithfully tell me. And I see her now, like 30 years removed from that, and she's still asking, how are you doing? How are you walking with the Lord? I'm thankful for men like Bart Box at Christ Fellowship Church who shaped my own pastoral ministry and for many of you here who shaped our lives for years to come. And we as a church, we should give thanks to God for men like Corey Varden and David Brown and David Burnett and Kyle Walker. Men who have labored for nearly a decade to faithfully teach and proclaim God's word in this church to lead well. We should thank God for many men and women who have spent countless hours preparing lessons to teach our kids. Not just saying, you know what, the Bible's for grown-ups. No. We have sisters who have labored labor for hours every week to go into a classroom and tell a 10-year-old the truths of the gospel. We should give thanks for that. And so, kids, this is, uh, you heard the announcement earlier, there's no more core training for the next few months, but kids... This is for you. Specific application. When this service is over, I want you to go find the people who have taught you in core training in midweek, and I want you to tell them thank you. You may not know today, but I hope one day you know just what a good gift it is to have people who are faithfully teaching you the word of God week in and week out. We even see an example of this some this week. Many, if probably not all of you, have heard that Pastor Harry Reeder at Broward Presbyterian Church was tragically killed this past Thursday in a car accident. I I did not know Dr. Reeder personally. I'm a graduate of Broward, so at least tangentially he had an impact on my life as he was training and equipping teachers in the school that I was going to. I know the Barbers were members there for many years and were deeply shaped and influenced by his ministry, as are many people that you work with or live near you. Albert Moeller wrote a tribute to Dr. Reader this week. He says, every age needs heroes and heroines, models and mentors. The church needs examples of faithful ministry and the encouragement of tested ministry. Christ's flock must be fed the meat of God's word intended by faithful pastoral shepherds. Dr. Harry Reader was such an example, a quintessential encourager and a true pastor. To me, he was a cherished friend. His death is a great loss to Briarwood, to Birmingham, 
to the PCA, and to the larger evangelical world. We pray for his sweet wife and family and for a grieving congregation. And yet Harry would be the first to insist that by the power of the gospel, we know that all will be well. And that Harry is now with the Lord he so faithfully served. All Christians should pause to thank God for the example of a godly pastor. God's provision of such a pastor is no small thing. And we dare not fail to take note of his passing. Church, we should just give thanks for the example of godly pastors and teachers, not not just here, but even in our city. And we should pray for more men and women equipped to be late, to lead faithfully with God's word. We should pray, God, raise up more and raise up more. We should desperately ask God to raise up brothers and sisters who will teach kids faithfully. We should want men and women who are leading Bible studies, whether it's here at their church or at their workplace or in their neighborhoods. We want brothers and sisters who are evangelizing wherever they go. I would love for us to send, we're going to send out in a few uh, later of the service, we're going to send the systems out and pray for them as they go. I hope that's something we don't do just once a decade. I hope God would raise up people who are in our church and are sent out to the nations for the sake of his word. We should pray for God to raise up leaders. We should pray for a church like Briarwood, that God would raise up a leader to take the place of Dr. Reeder. We should pray for Philadelphia Baptist Church. Be reminded, God knows what we need. He is the triumphant Christ. He knows exactly what we need and when we need it. Don't grow discouraged if we don't see it right now. Pray that God would continue to raise up faithful elders, men who would shepherd this church, and faithful men and women who would evangelize their neighbors and teach a coming generation. If we want to grow into Christian maturity, we need leaders who are faithful with his word. And the third ingredient we get to, verse 12, the third ingredient for growth and Christian maturity, we need saints equipped for ministry. We need saints equipped for ministry. Verse 12 says, God gives ministers of the word to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now look, if you're still looking at keep looking at that sentence. Who here is doing the ministry? Who are the ones doing the ministry? It's the saints. It's not just the leaders who are out there doing all the work of ministry. We need to equip God. We need some super talented people, and that'll be enough to get it all done. No, it's the saints who are equipped to do the work of ministry. The church, you, brothers and sisters, are the ones who are called to do the work of ministry. And I want to point that out because that little sentence has pretty big ramifications for how we think of and want to do ministry as a church. New Testament scholar Benjamin Merkel, he says it this way, the ministry is not just for a select few who are paid to work by and for everyone else. Instead, God gifts leaders for the task of equipping all the saints to do the work of service. And if that's the model of ministry that is held out for us here, then those of us who teach, we we have a question to ask. It's not just, am I doing a good job in my ministry? Actually, the question that I'm asking myself that we should ask leaders now is, am I doing the right job? Think about, uh, imagine that you're, you're a high school math teacher and you're going into an employee interview. You could ask Macy Miley what this is like. I don't exactly know, so I'm just imagining. You, when you're hired, you're going to get asked questions like, are you good at math? You're going to show them a degree, a diploma that you, you're good at math. 
I don't know if you take an entrance exam or whatever, but you got to be good to, you have to be able to do the thing when they hire you. Now, a year from now, you, you're hired at, you go back for an evaluation, employee evaluation. The principal is not going to say, hey, you still good at math? Did you, uh, let me give you the final exam and see if you can pass it. That's not the question. The question that's asked is not, did you do this well, but did you train your students to do math better? Did you equip them for the work? So elders, teachers, evangelists, and leaders in the church, we should, we should want to do ministry well. That's a good thing, to desire that our ministry be done with excellence. But if we do ministry well and we are not equipping the saints to minister well, it's possible we've just misunderstood our job description. Our job is to equip others. And for all of us, teachers and likewise, everybody, this is just a reminder. We are all ministers. You all are called to be ministers. Brothers and sisters, the job of ministry is with all of us. Building up the body of Christ, equipping the church, doing the work that is called upon us by God requires the whole body. So don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be content to just receive ministry that is done for you, but go seek to find ways that you can be one doing ministry by you. Seek to serve others. And here at Philadelphia, there there are of course like some programmatic ways that you can do that. We're praying right now that God would send people to teach core training in midweek I'm thankful for the many of you who have hosted home fellowships in your homes, and we need more of those. I'm thankful for people like Miss Betty and Miss Wanda who come on Wednesdays and put out butcher paper and crayons so that my kids don't color just on the tables. If you're grateful for that, you can thank them after this. But you don't have to serve even in those, those little programmatic ways. Those are good places to start, but there are so many other places that we can be serving the body of Christ. The ministry of a church goes far beyond just kind of the official programs that you find on our website. I know many of you who are trying regularly to have people in your homes to encourage them, who are asking good questions and making spiritual friendships to encourage people to walk with the Lord. Many of you have taken meals to new moms or to people who are dealing with health problems. You're encouraging people. You're sharing with one another, hey, I'm trying to tell my coworker about the gospel, or I've got a family member who I am trying to share the word with, would you pray for me? Your prayers and just asking and encouraging that person, I'm praying for you. That's a service. That's a service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is ministry. And so what I'm trying to say is if, if you say, like, the lane for working out ministry is about as wide as the ministries, the programs of this church, it, it's this wide. Go find other brothers and sisters in Christ. Go find people who don't know the Lord and serve. You don't even have to ask me permission. I want you to go. I'm pleased as a pastor when I hear all the ways that you are doing service that I don't have any hand in. If, if service to the church, if maturity in Christ is going to come through David Brown and Ryan Adams, good luck. Even if you just include all the elders, that's not how God has built his church. Maturity in Christ is a whole body project. It requires saints who are equipped to do the ministry, working for and with one another to build up the body of Christ. And that leads to this last ingredient for maturity that we see in this passage. We need a commitment to work together towards Christ-likeness. 
a commitment to work together towards Christ-likeness. Verse 13 says, These saints who are doing the ministry, they are working to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christian maturity is a group project. We are called to minister and build one another up until we all, we all attain the fullness of Christ himself. And what that does, that kind of recasts the goal of the Christian life. At least I think it it helps me to recast the goal of Christian life. If If I'm not careful, I can start to think that the goal of my Christian life is that I just get more and more mature as I get older. My The goal of, of the Christian life is my own maturity. But that's not the goal that's stated here. The goal is not that you simply become mature yourself. That's too small. The goal is that you help others become mature in Christ and they help you until we all attain to the fullness of the measure of Christ. In fact, someone who says, I'm really spiritually mature and they, they care only about their, only spir- their own spiritual maturity, I think that just reveals their blind immaturity in some ways. Pastor Mark Dever, he tells a story about a classmate of his when he was in seminary. This classmate would kind of routinely pop into church service a few minutes late. He would almost always leave a little early. He'd intentionally avoid conversations with other people. And Dever, Dever finally asked him one day, he says, why, why is it that you don't join? Why, why are you not committing to this group of people? And, and this guy, this seminary student, uh, who I was probably this arrogant as a seminary student too, so no shade on him. It's just the way that he was thinking. I, I'm afraid that these people are going to slow me down. I'm afraid that those people are just going to slow me down in my, my progress. Now, now I, Dever was wise and kind. And just said, you know, maybe, maybe the goal of the Christian life is something a little different than that. Maybe what you need to do is be willing to slow down some and actually grab others to walk to heaven together. Maybe that's what they need, and it's definitely what you need. Now, I know not everyone here is the bubbly kind of stay and chat after church for an hour. I think it was Corey who, after my first Sunday here, said, go get your extrovert on, um, and that's, that's not my, my gifting, okay? I love you. I love talking to you. I promise. I'm not the extrovert, okay? But, but we are, we are called. If, if you just think that you want to live the Christian life alone, I think this text and the rest of the Bible will tell you that you are bound to live in this perpetual state of spiritual immaturity. You've not availed yourself, given yourself to the gifts that God has actually given to you to make you mature. Beyond that, if you are a Christian, God has given you a gift. That's what we said at the beginning. God has given you a gift. And for for you to say, I'm I'm not going to utilize that in a body. You're robbing this church or the church you belong to or the church you could belong to. God wants to use your gift to actually help someone else get mature as well. We are called to stick together. We commit to work together. And we commit to work together to a goal of Christ's likeness. God gives our diverse gifts to build one another up in unity in Christ, a unity that involves knowing Christ and displaying his character. And every now and then I just need this reminder that the, the measuring stick of faithfulness, of success, is this. The measuring stick of success is growth in Christ's likeness. Specifically for a church, it may be easy to say success 
is like more people in the seats, bigger budgets, cleaner, nicer buildings. That's, that's just not the measuring stick that's held out for Christian maturity in the Bible. The measuring stick for our church is how are we doing in growing in Christ-likeness? How are we doing in knowing and then displaying unity in Christ? Now, one reason we need this kind of maturity, that's the maturity we need, and a reason that we need this maturity is the danger that Paul points out in verse 14. Okay, we strive to attain to the fullness of the stature of Christ, and verse 14 says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Throughout the Bible, God, God commends childlike faith. Okay, trusting God like a child is a good thing. God does not commend childlike gullibility. He does not want us to be immature and gullible. Uh, clearly, so this, this, is, this can be for any of you. But specifically, if you are a teenager, uh, if you're a young adult, or, or if you're a newer Christian, I, I want you to listen to this point carefully. Okay, at some point in your life, you will be confronted with a viewpoint that is different than what you were hearing taught in this church and taught in your home. Sometimes that is done out of malice, out of deceit is what the text says. There are people who would love, who would actually take great joy in telling you and convincing you that what we say here and what your parents have said based on scripture is false. It may, be there, it may be people who actually say they are Christians even sometimes and bring new interpretations of some doctrine that you've never heard before. And you may wonder, what do I do with this? I have people who are telling me something. I've just not wrestled with this before. I've not thought about that question. Just know that your parents and your pastors and your church members, we want to help you. We want to help you stand firm against this wind of doubt. Many of us have walked through those waters before. Many of us have been assailed by doubt. And my appeal to you, little brother, little sister, is this, don't go through this alone. This whole passage is about walking together with one another. And it says, if you don't want to be like this, if you don't want to be pushed aside, tossed to and fro, God gives the gift of his church. And let me tell you, this, this, this is where I think the enemy will lie to you. Many of us can attest to friends in our own life. I have a, a dear friend, a, a man who is in my wedding, who I loved, and who for several months kind of stepped away from friendship. And when he came back, what he told us is that he had been wrestling with some questions about the faith. What do I believe about these things? And he decided he wanted to wrestle with those alone. And what happened is the picture of what Paul points here. He was tossed to and fro. Every wind just blew him around. And he is not walking with the Lord today. Little brother, little sister, those of you who have not kind of walked into college or people who have said, here's some different things, we want to walk through this with you. If you have doubts or questions, don't go it alone. God has given the body of Christ so that we can go through this with you. And if the enemy lies to you and says you'll be ostracized if you tell people you're questioning some of these things, people will be embarrassed about you. Your parents will be so disappointed. No, no, friend. We love you. We love you. 
And we want to walk through any of these questions together with you. And this is true if you're an adult. If you're an adult here and walking through some of these doubts, come find us. Don't walk through these questions alone. One of the reasons God has given the church is so that we won't be tossed back and forth. So that we, the winds of, do, of doubt would not swamp our spiritual ship and we drown. Find a Christian and walk through that together. Friend, if, if you're here and you are not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. We, we count it a joy and a privilege that you came to hear. And what I want you to see in this even small passage and throughout the Bible is that there are such things as true and false Christianity. There's such things as true and false Christianity. You can go to a kiosk in New York City and buy a Louis Vuitton purse for $39.95 and they will swear that it's the real thing. There are people who will package Christianity, make it look nice, tell you it's the real thing, and it's not. If you want to know how to discern that, we think it's here. This is the foundation God has given us to stand upon, to say, is this real? And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're kind of skeptical about Christianity, thank you for coming to a church where maybe it's tough to do that. I just would ask probingly, maybe, if are you sure that what you've turned away from is the real thing? Could it be, at least, that perhaps what was sold to you was a false bill of goods? Or someone who claimed the name of Christ but was not actually a Christian? The thing that you're turned off by is fake. I'm not saying that the the doctrines of the gospel are easy all the time. We're told that the, the cross is the offense to the world. But, but if you're still wondering, if you're not sure if you've walked through, if you know, have I, am I still wrestling with the real Christianity? We want to help you think about that. I'd love to study the Bible with you, to read the Bible with you. We'd count it a joy and a privilege. And if that's you, then find me after church. Find any Christian here, and we would love to take the time to walk through Scripture with you and say, here's the real thing. Reckon with that. Don't, don't settle for a false product and reject the false thing. Find the true thing and wrestle with the true God of the Bible, the one who is revealed in his scriptures. We would count it a privilege to walk through that with you. Brothers and sisters, we will face opponents who are dead set to convince us that our doctrine and that our lives, they are an embarrassment. They want us to feel mistaken and we should In this text, we're told we need to commit to working with one another to stand firm in the faith. We're walking together towards Christ's likeness. And that's the goal that Paul puts before us in verses 15 through 16. Paul is kind of in 15 to 16, summing all of this up. It's really just kind of a recap of a lot of what he has said. So verse 15, look there. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. These verses, like I said, are a summary of things we've seen all along. Again, you can see the importance there of the role of speaking. But but I think that you're actually seeing a picture of the church even maturing some here. Because the speaking that's being done here, it, yes, I'm sure there are leaders and, and uh, there are shepherds and teachers doing this, but here it looks like the church is growing up. And it's not just the leaders who are speaking the truth and love, it's the whole body. It is the word echoing around a body of Christ, encouraging one another, speaking the truth and love, not just pastor to member, but member to member, friend to friend. People who care enough and love enough to say, I I want to encourage you in the way that you are walking faithfully. I want to correct you that it looks like you're going in a way you need to turn from. 
God is using the gift of his word to encourage and correct one another as occasion requires. That's what we say together in our church covenant. We see here that the ultimate provider of this maturity is Christ himself. Just like he gave gifts in verse 8, we're told here that he is the head. He is the one who equips his body. Every resource we need, Philadelphia Baptist Church, every resource we need for maturity is given by Jesus Christ. That we could walk in that. He gives it so that we can grow up into his image. And we are all doing this together. This maturity is not just saying, I want to be spiritually mature. It's not just for me. Paul says here, it's for the whole body. It's done by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Christian, God does not want you to stay in a perpetual state of spiritual immaturity. That is not his desire and his delight for you. I hope it's not what you want as well. As, as an earthly father delights in seeing their infants say, Dada, and take their first steps and learn to tie their shoes, so our heavenly father looks and he wants growth and spiritual maturity. He delights in seeing that. And by his Holy Spirit that he has given to you, in his word that he has given to the church and through it, the church itself, he has given us everything we need so that we can grow up into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So how about you? Are you using your gifts to help others reach maturity? Or are you putting yourself in a place where others can be using their gifts to help you reach your maturity in Christ? Let me close in prayer for us and ask that God would make us a place that are committed to walking together towards Christ-likeness. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a solid foundation upon which we can stand and where we can see Christ lifted high, the head of the body, giving gifts to his people. And we pray that you would equip your body, your people, with everything we need for life and godliness. Give us, Lord, these gifts. We thank you for the men and women in this church that you have used in our lives, and we pray that that would continue for generations to come. So that, at that final day, we may stand before you, mature in Christ, because of what you have done through this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.